I love having the kids in here. Uh, on a side note, uh, if you got kids rolling around in the aisles and making noise, this is part of the church family. So don't worry about it, parents, right? And uh, if that bothers you, then you'll be fine. <laughs> well, hey, I can't stress enough, uh, don't miss out on the luncheon today uh, with George and Leela. What a, what a, we're actually seminary buddies, him and I, so excited to, to hear their story and hear more about what they're doing. So make your way downstairs right after the service. Uh, that will be an incredible time uh, to just support them and pray for them and encourage them and, and hear about what the Lord is doing. Uh, there's some incredible stuff going on over there. And so thank you. Thank you for being here, brother. Um, yes, and today is also Memorial Day. Uh, it is important for us to just remember that we have this freedom to gather together because of all the men and women who have sacrificed their lives, that have laid down their lives for us to not have the same kind of persecution that he's, he's having to deal with. And so as you celebrate tomorrow, t- take, a time, take a moment to just thank the Lord, to pray for those families that are, that are hurting, who have lost loved ones and who have given their lives for our, for our benefit, for our freedom. So, all right. Well... I like you guys. You guys doing all right? Yeah. Good. We have uh, Bibles available in the back. If anybody needs one, our ushers will bring you a copy. And some of our kid ushers, come on, find somebody with their hand up. And uh, we are in Titus chapter 3 today. And a good way to find the book of Titus is just to find any of the T's in the New Testament. First and Second Timothy, First and Second Thessalonians. Titus, they're all kind of in a, in a big clump there. So if you find one of those, just kind of flip around and you found Titus. We'll be in chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 8. And I don't know if I introduce myself. My name is Brandon McCaughey. If you don't know me, um, I'd love to hang out and take you out to coffee or lunch. And I say that all the time and many of you have taken me up on that. I'm still waiting for some of you. I see you out there. Hit me up. But uh, this week we are in week 6 of a seven-week series through the book of Titus. And today, again, we're in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. So Paul and Titus, they've been planting churches on the island of Crete. Shortly after they plant these churches, the churches fall into disarray. Paul tells Titus in verse 5 that he left him on the island to put in order what remains. Now, this is a difficult task for Titus because it's not just that the churches are a mess, but the people, the entire society of Crete is a disaster. In fact, Paul quotes one of the Cretan poets in chapter 1, verse 12, who writes about his fellow countrymen, and he says this about them. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's a nice sentiment, somebody to write about their countrymen. But this is Titus's mission field. This is what he's dealing with on a daily basis. To put in order churches and people comprised of lazy, fat, evil liars, basically. And this society is in desperate need of change. A people who need the transforming power of the gospel in their lives. Today, 
Paul is going to instruct Titus just how that change comes about in the life of a believer. So let me ask you to stand, church. We want to read God's word together. We want to put the word of God on your lips. So let's stand. The words will be on the screen. And let's read these words from Paul to Titus in Titus 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who looked down on this broken, sinful world and from eternity past had a plan to redeem us and save us from our sin. And we thank you for for the way Paul so clearly shows us that beautiful picture of salvation. So I pray for each heart this morning in this room that we would be touched by your spirit's power, by the power of the word. That we would see the transformation that you've brought into our lives and praise you because of it. We thank you for, for Jesus his sacrifice. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's transformational power in our lives. And Lord, I pray that each one here will be taught by you today. Again, through the power of your precious word. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. You all may be seated. So I'd like to begin by asking you to think about this process of change, this transformation that Paul's been writing about for, for just a moment. You know, Paul's been talking about how right doctrine, having right beliefs leads to holy living. And the reality is that whether we, whether we like it or not, the beliefs that we hold and the choices we make are always changing us in one direction or the other. The Christian psychologist Lewis Smead once said, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married. And each one of them has been me. That's so true. Every one of us is constantly growing and changing. Which means that everyone else in our lives also has the privilege of adjusting to our change. To the changes that are going on in our lives. The way that God is moving us and molding us. 
So we must learn to be gracious and patient with one another in that changing. So if change is part of life, then let me ask you, church family, in what direction are you changing? Where is the change taking you? You see, you're either changing by hardening your hearts, as the book of Hebrews says, or you're growing in the image of Christ, growing in holiness. There, there's no third option. You can't remain static. And unless we are intentionally moving towards the change that the Holy Spirit is setting before us, unless we are active participants in that transformation process, then by default, you are moving away from Christ. So the question is not, should I change or am I changing? The question you should ask yourself this morning is, in what direction am I being changed? This is why this passage is so important for us. Because it's written to people just like us. And Paul is telling Titus what change needs to occur in the heart of every believer. Now the first eight verses of chapter 3 are, are rather unusual. Because verses 4 through 7 in the original language are just one big long sentence. Paul is the run-on sentence guy. He, he's the English teacher's nightmare. But most scholars would say that these verses comprise what, what we would call an early Christian creed or a statement of beliefs about what we as Christians hold as true. And that's because the whole passage hinges and centers on this one verb in the middle of verse 5. Now one verb in English is translated as he saved us. He saved us. God Brought each one of us salvation. God, you're right. And this, this phrase is the key to understanding everything else in this passage. Paul is addressing what we would call the doctrine of salvation. What is the right belief about salvation? The gift that God has given us to redeem us. Now that word for salvation in the Greek can be translated a lot of different ways. It can, be, it can be to rescue or to heal or to deliver. It can also mean wholeness, restoration, or transformation. But Paul's point is that God is in the business of changing everything for us through the salvation he has offered to us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now salvation is not just what God has done in the past. It's not that moment where in faith, you stepped out and said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That was the first point of salvation. But salvation continues from that point until the day you die and stand before God in glory. Because our rescue is ongoing. Because one day, we will become perfect, holy, complete, lacking in nothing. And sadly, that day is not today. <laughs> I mean, it could be today. I don't know. But... We're ready? Yeah, yeah. But all that God has offered us in this gift of salvation is seen here in this passage. So let's look at these first eight verses more closely. And I want to begin this morning with chapter 3, verse 3. I'm going to skip ahead. We'll come back to 1 and 2. So I didn't forget. This is purposeful. 
Because Paul is going to give us a clear picture of what our lives were like without Christ before we were saved. Look what he says. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Kind of sounds a little worse than what the Cretan guy told his, about his countrymen. And when you read verses like this, you realize how little we deserve this gift of salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ. There's a pastor and a theologian, his name is Paul Tripp. And he wrote an article entitled, What a Wretched Man That I Am. And in it, he goes back to Romans chapter 7, which is a kind of a longer, drawn-out passage similar to what we're reading here in verses th verse 3. But he paraphrases Romans 7 and he says it like this. He says, I am a mass of contradictions. I don't want to be, but I am. I preach a gospel of peace, but my life isn't always driven by peace. I talk about Jesus who alone can satisfy my soul, but I am often so very dissatisfied. I celebrate a theology of amazing grace, but I often react with such ungrace. And if I rest in God's control, why do I seek control for myself? Even in the moments when I think I'm prepared, I end up doing what I didn't want to do. Irritation, impatience, envy, discontent, anger, self-focus, these are not the fruit of a new life. These are not the way of grace. And so I find this other law operating within me. When I step out with a desire to do good, evil follows me wherever I go. There is this war that rages inside of me between a desire for good and sin itself. There are times when I feel like a prisoner held against my will. And I didn't plan to get mad in the grocery store, but that guy who cut in line made me so angry. I didn't plan to be discontent, but it just enveloped me in the quietness of my car. That discussion that I had with my coworker wasn't supposed to degenerate into an argument, but boy, did it ever. I am so thankful for God's grace, but there is daily evidence that I am still in so much need of help. I am humbled by the war that I cannot win. I've been grieved by desires I cannot conquer. I've been confronted by actions I cannot excuse. And I've come co to confess that what I really need is rescue. So have mercy on me, O oh God, have mercy. Now, deep down, every single one of us knows that's exactly who we are, amen? Any, any, anyone not there? You can come counsel me after if, you, you know, if you've gotten there. It's easy to look at the world around us. It's easy to, to, to look into the depths of our own hearts and recognize the sin that is still so prevalent. And every one of us has dealt with that struggle of sin and have been discouraged by it. Sometimes we even beat ourselves up because of it. Especially when you think about how long you've been a believer, you know, and you think, oh, I should be better than this by now. Been following Jesus for 30, 40 years. Still can't get some of these things done. 
how long have I heard the truth of God's word and it just seems to bounce off? I don't know. But what Paul is doing here in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, is he's reminding us where every single one of us has started. Because for every person who has ever lived, and church, I cannot tell you how important this is to understand. Every person who has ever lived has started in the same place as broken, wretched sinners. And if you can understand that truth, it should really make you a lot more compassionate for those who don't know Christ yet. Because they are just as lost as you were. You just might be a few steps further down the path. As broken sinners in need of a Savior, Paul is reminding us that it is only because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that we can overcome the sin in this world, in our own hearts. So if we so desperately need a Savior, if we're all on this level playing field of broken, desperate sinners... We need a savior. And Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 tell us who will save us. Look what Paul writes. He said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. God's goodness and loving kindness is what took the initiative. It was his idea to rescue you. And it's his desire to complete the process. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, the gift of salvation originated in the heart of God. He took the initiative to rescue us, and he is in the business of transforming and changing our hearts. He's committed to your transformation. He's committed to you becoming holy, becoming like Jesus. And he won't get tired of the process. He doesn't get bored or irritated or impatient with you. Sometimes I think he looks down and he goes, really? But as we know in Philippians 1.6, he always finishes what he starts. He always finishes what he starts. So then how does God change us? Verse 5 and 6 says this. It says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Not by our righteous works, but by his mercy you have been saved. Not by our righteous works, but by his mercy. You've been saved. There is nothing you bring to the table except the sin in which needs forgiveness. Paul also says that the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit comes through his working and his power in our lives. You are washed clean because the Holy Spirit has regenerated your sinful heart. And he's taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. Now, you and I can never regenerate our sinful hearts on our own. You can do all the good works in the world. And that doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you nice. 
but it doesn't make you one of the redeemed. Regeneration is the process in which God takes a spiritually dead life and makes it spiritually alive. He gives us eyes to see, a heart of flesh to make us compassionate, loving, more like Jesus. He gives us a passion to know him, to obey his commandments. And gives us new desires and passions and giftings. All of this is part of the work of regeneration in our lives. But it's amazing that, that God doesn't stop there. Because it says the Holy Spirit continues the rescue operation. He doesn't make us spiritually alive and then leave us to figure out the rest for ourselves. He gives us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts to change us, to begin that process of transformation, to finish the work that he began and the work that he's doing today in each of our lives. Now, we often resist that work, right? The Holy Spirit is seeking to transform us and we're like, no, but I want to sin. I like that sin. I like the comfort. I like the ease. I like, you know, I, I want it. And regardless of whether you resist him or whether you feel like that process is going as quickly as you want, there will come a day where you will look back on your life and you will see the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in your life, in the change that he has brought into who you are. See, regeneration and renewal are the works of the Holy Spirit. And there is no shortage of the Holy Spirit working in your life. He, he, he's God. He doesn't run out. He doesn't get tired. In fact, I love, Augustine used to pray this. He said, breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I may always be holy. See, the Holy Spirit wasn't just given to keep us on the right track. It was given as a gift so that you and I could become more like Jesus day by day. And that precious gift of his indwelling is part of God's plan of salvation for our lives. Now look at this beautiful verse. Verse 7 tells us that God saved us. So that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Have you ever thought about that idea that you are an heir of the kingdom of God? You are worthy of all its riches because of what Christ has given you. All the beauty of who Christ is, he shares with you because he loves us. We are being saved, Paul says, justified by his grace so that we can become heirs. And if God has begun this work of salvation in us, then his goal is to get us to this place where we become heirs with him. According to the hope of eternal life. His hope is to bring us to our eternal home. And if you know that that's the goal, if you have that perspective, that frame of mind then the things that you go through, these situations and trials and difficulties that you experience in this life, 
should always make a little bit more sense in light of that truth. That God is working diligently to make you his heir. To bring you into his kingdom forever. And unfortunately for us, because of our sin-stained nature, because of our love for sin, sometimes it requires God to discipline us. To bring us through trials and difficulties so that we come out on the other side looking more like Jesus. Now we're going to go back to verses 1 and 2 and then also verse 8. Because how, do, how do you know if God is rescuing you? How do you know that this transformation process is happening in your life? If you go back to verses 1 and 2, look what Paul says to Titus. Because the answer is that your life will be changed. Your life will look different than it did before you knew Christ. It, your lifestyle will match the grace that has been bestowed upon you. This is what Paul is talking about here in verses 1 and 2. He says, remind them. Remind these believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse 8 tells us much the same thing. He says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, Paul is telling Titus to insist that believers are careful to devote themselves to a life that looks different than the rest of the world around us. It's not, oh, my ticket out of, out of hell. That's not salvation. Your ticket out of hell is a byproduct of what Christ has called you to be. And he has called you to be holy as he is holy. And he says this transforming work of the Holy Spirit gets us to a place where our behavior looks different than the rest of the world. So much so that we devote ourselves to good works, to being kind and gracious and loving to other people. Even when they're not gracious and kind and loving back. We've been called to grow in the grace that God has bestowed upon us. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, when I speak of a man growing in grace, I mean simply this. That his sense of sin is becoming deeper. His faith stronger, his hope brighter, his love more extensive, his spiritual mindedness more marked. He feels more of the power of godliness in his own heart. He manifests more of it in his life. He is going on from strength to strength, from faith to faith, faith and from grace to grace. Paul told us back. In chapter 2, that Christ's redemption causes us to become a people who are zealous for good works. Who are passionate for what God is passionate for. He writes this. He says, Christ gave himself for, uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your, in your lives, because of the gift of salvation that we've been given. Little by little, we should be more like little Christ. 
You, re, you know, you realize that's what Christian actually means, right? Christian literally means little Christ. So if you're going to call yourself that, that should be your goal. And if it's not your goal, don't call yourself that. You make the rest of us look bad. Now, I'm not talking about being perfect. We, we've made that abundantly clear. It's not about living a sinless, perfect life. But let me give you an example. When somebody wrongs you or does something that just irks you, what is your response to that person? Is it to hold a grudge? Is it to backbite and gossip about them? Is it about to talk behind their back and slander their name through the community? Is it to shun them and to pretend like they don't exist? So when you see them at church, you go to the other side of the room? That is not the heart of a little Christ. The heart of little Christ forgives even when you are not forgiven in return. Loves even when you are not loved in return. Shows grace and mercy in abundance. This is what Paul is talking about. That our response to the situations in our lives looks vastly different than how the culture would respond. And so it's a good question to ask yourself. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to transform who I am? Or do I cling to my sin nature with both hands, just unwilling to let go? This is your part. This is how you engage with all of this. This is the application part of the sermon. The answer, the response is to turn to the Holy Spirit and say, I need you. I'm broken. Change me. Mold me. Make me into the image of Christ. Oh, Lord, please. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Be a little Christ. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught and all with a heart of thanksgiving. But how do you continue to, on this process of transformation? You turn to the Holy Spirit. You tell him your need. And you say, have your way in my life. I'm yours. And then when you're doing something that's squirrely, and you know what you, you know what I'm talking about. When you're doing something and that little voice, that conscience prick says, hey, or maybe it's a friend of yours or your spouse. Hey, you're acting the fool. Or hey, you were really unkind with your words. Or hey, that response was super inappropriate to the, to the situation. Then your response to that is, Lord, forgive me to make your relationships right. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into my kids' rooms at night and said, hey, your dad was a real jerk today. Please forgive me. I was wrong. The way I spoke to you was wrong. It did not honor the Lord. It did not build you up in Christ. Please forgive me. Learn to own your sin. And, man, I, I can't tell you how much that changes your relationships. Now, this idea of asking for the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Because we've already been promised the Holy Spirit. You're already filled with him if you're a believer. But I want to turn your attention to a passage in Luke chapter 11. 
Because Jesus tells his disciples really clearly in verses 9 through 13, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, just to be clear, he's not talking about asking for like a Maserati or something like that. This is not what he's, this is not the, you know, I pray and ask and then the Lord gives me what I want. He's not a genie. He says, what father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? That'd be mean. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. That one's probably worse. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is what he's saying you can ask for. Very clearly, he says, you ask for the Holy Spirit, his wisdom, his counsel, his correcting power. And God will always answer that prayer. He will give it to you in abundance. We're not asking God to do something he hasn't already promised to do. We are praying in line with his will. Because your father who is good knows that for you to become more like Jesus, you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need to learn to submit to his leading. That doesn't just happen automatically. You have to say, Lord, show me who you are. Transform me into your likeness. Holy Spirit, I submit to your will. Now the answer to the question of, well, why do I need to ask for something I've already been given? Right? Some of you are thinking, I already have the Holy Spirit. Why do I need to ask for more of it or him? Because I believe the answer is if you didn't ask, then you would look at the transformation in your life and you'd take all the credit. Because right? that's what we prideful humans do. Look how compassionate and kind I am now. Look how humble and how gentle if you say you're humble, you're clearly not, just for the record. <laughs> Look how patient and self-control I've become. I'm doing so great. That would be your response unless the Holy Spirit comes in response to you saying to your Father, Holy Spirit, come. I cannot overcome this sin on my own. I cannot transform this broken heart into something beautiful without you. This, this is too big for me, this temptation, this trial. If you don't step in, Holy Spirit, I don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus is promising us that if we ask the Father to give us that transforming work of the Holy Spirit, he will always respond. Now, some of you are thinking, i got to try that. Please try that. This is, this is the part where it's, okay, I heard the message. That was some good stuff. Now what? You go pray that prayer, please, and see what the Lord does in your heart. I promise you he will change you. If you ask the Holy Spirit to move in your life, he promises he always will. Amen? So let's pray, church, and then we're going to move into a time of communion together. But let's ask the Lord to bless our, our time. Father God, we do thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you for the precious gift of salvation, how you change us and mold us. And Lord, for those that are in this room that are feeling skeptical, give them the courage to pray that prayer. And show them that you are a God who never stops working in our lives. Even if it's been a long time. Even if your heart feels hard and heavy. You never throw in the towel. You never give up. You will finish what you start. We thank you for that incredible truth. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.